Hey, welcome to Music Made Me, the TuneCore podcast. I'm Erin Frankenheimer, and I'm going to be your host on today's episode. Today, we're talking about getting the attention of booking agents, specifically how you put your best foot forward when seeking the work and assistant of a professional booking agent. What do you already need to have in place? Getting the attention of a quality and professional booking agent is one thing, and agreeing to work together is another. Here today to help us better understand the steps an artist on the rise needs to take in order to secure a booking agent is Jay Williams. Jay is a partner at WME in Nashville. His roster includes heavy-hitting acts like Luke Bryan, Eric Church, Dirk Bentley, and Chris Stapleton, and incredible artists on the rise like Cadillac 3, Jay Roddy Walston in the Business, and Brothers Osborne. Jay is a champion of his acts, starting work with some of them in their artist infancy. He knows what he's looking for in an act when they are megastars and when they are just starting to hit their stride. To help us better understand one of the most coveted pieces to an artist's team, here is Mr. Jay Williams. Welcome, Jay. Thank you so much for being here with us today. Glad to be here. Okay, so here we go. Question number one. Could you please start by giving a brief run-through on your background, how you became a booking agent, and what inspired you to follow this path? I, uh, I've always been around music and loved music. My parents exposed me to a lot of different types of music growing up, and I played not well, but played piano and saxophone when I was younger. And then once I get into high school, I started discovering sort of, I guess, my own music that I was interested in. And it ranged from, you know, I went through like a Beatles phase and then a really big Grateful Dead phase for several years and really got into sort of singer-songwriter stuff. At the same time, I was playing music and uh, starting to play in some bands in high school and college. And once I got to Swanee, which was a small school and it was, it was easy to do, to be involved in, in campus activities. I became social chairman of my fraternity. And then my junior and senior year was on the concert board, co-headed the concert board up there, which really exposed me to booking bigger bands. You know, I think we had Coco Taylor in RBQ, widespread panic. If you didn't do widespread panic every other year at Swanee back then, you, you would, the, the school would revolt. So we, uh, and you know, it was in those days, not only were you booking the show, I, my junior year, I was also the caterer. We like, we cooked dinner and had their dinner in our dorm common room. I was the runner, the loader, paid the band, built the stage. It was my kind of first exposure to bigger back workings of, of a show. After college, I really wasn't sure what I wanted to do. I was a natural resource major, which was forestry and geology. Drifted out to Wyoming for a little bit to, to fly fish and came back to Nashville thinking that I would just sort of stroll in and, and get a job in the music business, but I really didn't know anybody. And it wasn't easy back then to figure out who to talk to or how to get in the door. It was, you know, you had a phone book and that was it. So I kind of cold called a bunch of record labels and Warner Brothers offered me an internship. And when I was offered that, I called my parents and said I needed to enroll in Belmont for an undergrad. They didn't have a graduate degree then. And just in order to go work for free for a record label. Parents weren't too thrilled about that, sort of talked some sense into me. I moved home about three or four months later. So I was still not even a year out of college and got a job for a collection agency where I worked for three years. At the same time, I started pursuing an MBA at night. I kept, because of my job at the collection agency, HCA, Hospital Corporations of America, was one of our biggest clients. And I would have to travel to Nashville to meet with them all the time. 
And over the, a year or so, a year and a half, I started connecting with friends that I knew that were from Nashville, that were moving back here, that were getting their foot in the door in the music business, like Earl Simmons and Dan Anderson and Scott Galloway. Connected with Mark Dennis then, who was married to a girl from my hometown. So I, I started to get this network and everything, everyone was advising me to go start in the mailroom at William Morris. I had, you know... Had a third of an MBA, a college degree, and this, the starting salary at the mailroom back then was like 15 grand a year. It was pretty, pretty anemic. But I had the support. I remember talking to my dad about it at the time. He was very encouraging and said, you know, this is the only time you're really going to have a chance to do this. And you're, you're, you may look back and regret never doing this if you don't. So I picked up everything and moved over here. September of 97. And I didn't know a lot about country music then, still kind of in the indie rock singer-songwriter world, and uh, started in the mailroom. Moved into a house with um, Fielding Logan, who's, you know, I talk to every day, where uh, does head of touring at Q Prime in Nashville, and Dirks, who ended up becoming one of my clients. And that'd be Dirks Bentley. Yes, Dirks Bentley. And, you know, it was back then, it was, there was... Looking back at how simple life was, we didn't have cable, we didn't have air conditioning. We just we went out every night and listened to music. You know, Nashville was was still kind of the the, the non country scene here was was still pretty um, vibrant then, but it was it was underground. It wasn't mainstream like it is now. So I really spent the first couple of years, you know, working my way from mailroom to assistant for Keith Miller. And learning under him and just sort of absorbing everything around me, you know, long hours. And I think it helped that I, had, I didn't go straight from college to the mailroom, that I had a couple of years to sort of in another business to, to see how things worked. And so when I came here and, and took a step back pay-wise, I was pretty hungry and excited to be in it. But, I, you know, I really didn't – the country back then was evolving – but still not where it is now, but it was changing. You know, you had pretty much one way in and that was country radio. And that was the only way you were going to break a band or an artist was through country radio. And so the first band that I signed was Nickel Creek, which had a little bit of country radio acceptance, but CMT was, was starting to evolve at the time and was really key and their early success. Um, they embraced, they, they made some beautiful videos early on. They were incredibly, so are an incredibly talented band. And I was, uh, I was fortunate enough to sort of be in the right place at the right time with those guys when they were, you know, finally ready to have a bigger agency look after them. And that's was my first foray into like, you know, becoming a responsible agent for a band. And it was exciting because it wasn't, we got to do things different and it wasn't just about country radio. And we got to, you know, they were playing rock rooms pretty early on. They sort of went from the folk bluegrass rooms to more standing rooms after a run through the theaters. And, you know, they, if you go listen to their first, second, third records, their music was evolving rapidly on every record. And that was, that was really fun just to, you know, hear the new music and then figure out a game plan and uh, act accordingly. And then after that, not too long after that, I started working with Dirks and he was the opposite. His first single 
was uh, what was I thinking? And it was a, a number one hit. So he was set on a different tra- trajectory, sort of with you know straight down the country lane. But it was it was different than just about uh, anything on the radio at the time. And it was younger and fresher. And you know he wanted to play nonstop. I, I'll have to go look, but I think we did you know well over 200 dates the first year after the single came out. And one of those runs was 37 shows in a row. 37 so days in a row. 37 dates in a row. Wow. How did you yeah. find how did you find Dirks? Um we I, we actually met uh through mutual friends down at the Station Inn, which is a bluegrass um club here in Nashville and and I think one of the epicenters for great music. Uh it's it's a just a Nashville institution and if you haven't been there and you stop by when you're in Nashville any night of the week you're going to see some of the best musicians around. And we we all used to just that was our you know, seeing a night or two a week, we would go hang out and see, you know, National Bluegrass Band, Gillian Welch and Dave Rawlings and Peter Rowan. And, you know, it was constant, like great players coming through there. So we, we met three mutual friends there and he, uh, he moved in not long after we met as he developed and was evolving. Cause when, he, when we first started living together, he was starting to play and write more gradually moved out, but he was still playing music. And I was, super busy you know at work and i would go down and see him he played downtown all the time he went from market street to this place called wolfie's and then when he got a band and i would go see him you know every few weeks i would go and and gradually over the a year or so you start realizing wow he's he's really getting some chops and this is um his songwriter's gotten better his band's great i mean steve missamore who was his drummer now was still playing with him then. And that's kind of when Capitol records took notice and they started showing up and Mike Dungan and autumn house and Larry Willoughby were down there a lot. And it was just fun. It was fun. It was really exciting to see, you know, one of your super close friends get discovered like that. And people start accepting him. And it was, you know, it was off to the races once the, the single hit, but he was very adamant about not just playing, you know, there, back then, the there was a huge, and there still is, a pretty healthy network of very country-leaning clubs that, you know, in the 90s might have been line dance joints, but now are just big honky-tonks, Billy Bob's and Coyote Joe's um, and places like that. There was a, there was a more uh, robust network back then, so you could tour nonstop as a country artist, and just play those. Dirks was was pretty adamant about playing, you know, the Georgia Theater instead, and playing Oxford and playing Tuscaloosa. So we we started out playing a lot of like SEC, and then expanded to other college towns with him. And I think that, you know, that path you still see when you go to his shows, that it's still a pretty young, fun audience. Those are incredible stories. And the great thing about you, Jay, is you're a music lover. It's more than just the business for you. I, I oh, thank you. totally forgot that you and Dirks were once roommates. Um, <laughs> yeah. But at the end of the you know, day. He also, he also worked. Uh, he worked a lot of different places in town. And he temped, he temped in our office for two or three weeks. Uh, from Mark Morris. Rader. And was an assistant answering the phone. So he knows what it's like to sit in an assistant's desk, too. Well, that's incredible. That being said, you're a music lover. You work with a lot of artists that you kind of take a chance on that are are younger, that are up and coming. 
But at the end of the day, there's a bottom line for you to meet, and your time is precious and limited. So I'd like to run through some qualifications we might think of being important to an agent looking for a new act. Uh, let me know how they rank for you when making a decision to work with or to not work with an act. How important is it for an act to be able to book their own shows and to be efficient on the road? How many shows should an act have under their belt before they start looking for help? Should they have a strong understanding and command of their own region? Should they be able to book regional runs on their own, mini tours with other local or regional acts? And do you expect an act to already have a command of basic tour management responsibilities, like advancing a show, having a writer in place? You know, there's not there's not one answer for that. I, I'm um, I don't have any fast rules about how and when I, I work with people. It's always a plus if you see that a band knows a how hard it is to book shows early on and to get people to pay attention and to get promoters to respond when there's nothing going on. There's when they've done that, there's there's sort of a mutual respect. You know, we take an artist on early that's been slugging it out for a year, booking their own shows. And you also, you know, you pay more attention, I think, if there's sort of a proven track record, even if it's like a regional history that where they've, you know, can sell 500 tickets in three or four markets that always sparks interest, I think, for any agent. And, you know, a lot of when, when we're hearing about artists now, it's through promoters because there's so much noise out there. There's so many things, you know, on streaming services that local promoters, club promoters are still a lot of our eyes and ears out there. And you'll, you know, occasionally hear from someone and it's way more of the guys in the trenches now in our office that are booking the clubs are discovering new music all the time because they're hearing about it from, you know, the, the local club promoter who is saying, wow, they sold out, you know, two nights, they're a great band. You need to pay attention. So there's some discovery from, from that perspective, but you know, I don't, there's no, I don't have a rule for me. It, it's, it really starts with the music and we have taken people so early on that, you know, where you've just heard three or four songs and you know, you know that there's something special there, but it may take a year to get the music right. And you may not tour for a year or two. It's very different than it was when, we, when I started, you know, 20 years ago, which was you didn't really sign anybody unless they had a, a record deal. And usually that was a major label deal. And then once they got the deal, then it was a chase among, you know, the few agencies that were in town then and they would end up somewhere. And then you really didn't start touring until the single came out. And if it was a hit, it was this much. And I have had two hits. It was that much. And it was really, you know, sort of a, a cookie cutter way of touring. And that's all changed in the past, you know, 10, 12 years where we're really, we're way more in artist development, which is my favorite. One of the, one of the uh, most favorite things that we get to do is, is finding talent early on and fostering it. And, you know, when you do that, you're and you're in the trenches together. It, it's usually artists tend to be a lot more, there's a lot more loyalty between artist and agent, agent artist, and a lot more dedication to have those little wins along the way. For me, it's, I get just as excited when somebody sells out the cannery for the first time and then the Ryman and then bridge, you know, it's all those little wins, any, any like progress as small as it is sometimes is exciting to me. And you feel like you're actually making a difference. Cause you're making the, you know, the right moves and the right decision and everything's moving in the right direction. 
but I don't have, you know, there's no, uh, there's no checklist that I go through when I, when I sign somebody, you know, we, we, I've signed people based on three or four songs that maybe took two or three years to develop. Caitlin Smith is a great example. Like, you know, she came in, gosh, I think it was four or five years ago and with her guitar and played, you know, a handful of songs. And I was blown away and begged her to work with her then. And if you've paid attention to her, her music has sort of gone through a couple of different iterations and, and it's all been great, but she's, she's now found her path and released this record and is, you know, touring. And if it feels, you know, like we've been working towards something for four years and it's, it's finally here, you know? And how does an artist like Caitlin Smith, how, how did she get in front of you to play those three songs? Her publisher. And, and we, you know, that's still a big, a big place of discovery now for us is, is publishers. We have a, a great network here in Nashville and you know, a lot of the community here and they're, they're music lovers too. And a lot of them I've been friends with for a long time. And if they hear something they think is in my wheelhouse or that I'll like or whatever, they're, they'll send it to me. And there's, you know, there's a, a trusted group that I don't blink if they're excited about something, I'll listen to it right away. And there's, you know, there's just so much talent now in Nashville and, and then not even from in Nashville, but funneling through Nashville, people coming here and getting publishing deals and coming here to write that it's really, you know, we rely heavily on publishers to tip us to things that, that we want to work with and vice versa. A lot of times, you know, we may be in the game. Artists can find me through several different avenues. You know, it's not hard to look anybody up anymore. And I may hear something that I think is really good and push it off to a publisher and hopefully, you know, get them working with it, you know, developing it with us. They're complete partners when it comes, comes to artist development. That could lead me into the next question. You know, publisher is a part of a team. Do you have, like, are there certain team members that an artist, that you hope an artist will have in place by the time they're knocking on your door? Do they need to have a manager? Does that make your life easier? Do they need a lawyer, PR person? Or a tour manager, you know, somebody you can trust to advance and manage shows in real time on the road. What, I mean, it sounds like from what you're saying, you, you take shots on people because of the quality of their work and the song and their artistry. But are there those pieces of the team that you kind of hope that they might have in place? I mean, I think you always hope that they're the right people in place. Like, even if it's one or two, if it's the right manager, it's fantastic. If it's an inexperienced manager that you're going to have to sort of walk through things together on and, and help. That's just, it's going to take more time, but it's not going to discourage me from working with somebody usually. But if there's, you know, if somebody comes in and has a, a very established manager that, that I like to work with, yes, of course, you're going to you know, pay a lot more attention. And the right attorney, as you know, can make all the difference in the world. So, you know, it's, it's, I pay, you might um, move quicker if the team, if there was more of the team in place than you would if it, if it was just you, you know, a lot of times I'll meet with people two or three times before we'll commit and uh, just see how the music's progressing. I mean, we're, we're in so early now that we're, you know, we're, we're giving feedback on songs and in some roles, in, in some ways, assuming the roles of publishers and A&R people. That's incredible. And then I guess also speaking to music and how it's developing, 
How and you'd mentioned this before that the, the old school rules were you you had to have a good history of touring, you had to be with a label, you had to have these singles coming up. But how important is it to have a working record with legs? Do you depend on an artist to have a new release to work with when you're pitching them to venues and festivals? Should an artist approach an agent like yourself before or after they release a new record? How do you kind of monitor that or value that? Well, I think um, <clears throat> with with streaming now, there's a lot. It's rare when you when an artist comes to us and there's no, you know, there's no been no music released. There's there's a handful. I can think of a handful in the last couple of years where it's just a clean slate digital, digitally. So they've usually there's a little bit of awareness. We have an awesome digital person in our office, um, Sloan Logue who joined us about a year and a half ago. She is so key early on with developing artists and, you know, sort of, I call it, she does like a digital diagnostics where she comes in and she'll look at your socials. She'll look at Spotify and tell you, you know, what to do or what, where she can maybe help. And that to me is sort of like one of the linchpin of artist development right now is that you've got if you can create a great digital strategy from the beginning that's where everybody's looking that's where it's the first place that you know club promoters that other artists are going to go look they're going to go to spotify and look at those numbers and decide whether or not they're going to put you on for support or they're going to give you a chance in this club if you can just give them proof it's you know it's the data that everybody can see if those numbers are right then you can start going, you can, you can go work a little bit. If they're really low, it's just going to be tougher. And, and that's, you know, one of the things we'll help work on is to figure out how to create more awareness and break through some of the noise so you can, you know, get paid better if you go and headline these small clubs or get the right support slots. One final question. I know we're, we're getting short on time here. How important is it the personality of an act or an artist. Uh, it's the music industry, it's a business, but it's a small industry and a small music community. How important is someone's reputation to you? If a band has a great reputation or stellar relationships in the music community, does that make you want to work with them more? And vice versa, if someone's known to be a headache or to be difficult to work with, does that weigh on your decision-making process whether you want to get involved? Absolutely. I mean, <laughs> that's resounding. Yes, reputation does make a difference. And, and, you know, when you're younger, you might be willing to maybe endure a little more headache, cancel shows, problems with agent. the venue. Yeah, you might be. But, you know, the, the older I've gotten and, and uh, it's like life's too short to really deal with people that are going to be a challenge because it's the business. This is what I tell everybody that, you know, that we start out with. It's like the business is hard enough as it is. So, you know, making all the pieces of the puzzle fit sometimes, if you just do it with grace and respect, it, it makes things so much easier. And the little problems aren't as big and things don't get blown out of proportion because at the end of the day, we're not curing cancer. We're, we're, it's entertainment. And if you can't have fun doing it, then I, it's, it's really tough for me to, to work with people that, are, that you know every time you pick up the phone, it's going to be a problem. Because essentially, you know, we're we're providing, hopefully, fun for people every night. Well, I that appreciate that. Yeah, that's a great that's a great answer. You know, you want to work with people who no, are did professional. Did I just stomp you? No, right. no, no yeah, yeah, and not, you know, you you don't always know who 
you don't see people's true colors all the time. And the longer you work with somebody, you see people's true colors. And I've been incredibly, incredibly fortunate to work with some clients going on now, you know, 12, 15 years who are all just great people and thankful and work just as hard as we do. One of the things I should say is like another thing you don't want is you don't want to work with an artist that's not willing to work as hard or harder than you for themselves. And, you know, when you're, it never, it's never works in a scenario where you've got, you may have the most talented artists in the world, but if they don't want it and they're not hungry and you're hungrier than they are, that's, that never works out. So that one of the key things that I think I've learned to hopefully pick up on is to, to sort of ask the right things, spend enough time early on to where you are really drilling down to like what their goals are and where they want to be and where they see themselves. And if they don't have a real clear path of where they want to be in a year, two years, five years, 10 years, then, then it's, it's a scary thing to sort of be the, be the, always be the horse pulling the cart, you know? Yeah, that makes perfect sense. And I guess, you know, as we're wrapping things up here, I'd love to ask you to share one more success story of an artist that you work with, uh, one that you helped nurture from the beginning of their career. Most everybody that I work with have been there from the get go. I don't, you know, I don't go out looking to take other people's clients. I never have. It's not my not my style. But I think Eric Church is the one that probably gets told the most just because his first tour, there was a buzz about the first record. He was on Capitol and EMI. So he did get some opportunities out of the gate, which was Rascal Flats, but uh, it was not a great fit um, for him and proceeded to him leaving the tour right after Madison Square Garden. And that was his first tour. I mean, he had done some things regionally, but it was his first kind of big tour. And ironically, or not ironically, Taylor Swift took Eric's spot on that tour, and that was her first tour when he left the tour. So when when he was off that tour, we sort of sat there. We're like, you know, we don't have a hit single yet. Um, the music was fantastic. It was just going to take people longer to get because it sounded so different from what was on the radio and so we started at that moment like building his fans from scratch essentially and would go in and play clubs where there would be 50 100 people maybe and watching that grow with each record and each touring cycle and you know every time you're going back to a market you're doubling you're tripling in capacity and selling out. And it was, you, 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 you see that you're having an effect or you're making an impact when you're doing a lot of that without, you know, he didn't have the acceptance of radio yet. And there was no streaming back then. So this was really just a very viral, um, word of mouth, almost like jam bandy kind of start to his career. He was essentially selling out arenas, before he had a top five single at radio. And that was the first time that I'd seen that in country. Um, so, wow. you know, a lot of people sort of model after that now and um, have had success with it, that, that we're just going to tour and tour in tandem. And if radio buys into it, great. Um, if not, we're still going to go tour. We're not going to sit on the sidelines and wait. And that was sort of his attitude. And that's the attitude that, that I think um, 
if you've got the right music and the right live show, it should be everyone's attitude. Well, thank you, Jay, so much for this. It's super insightful to hear your perspective on things and to get your insight on what an artist needs to have in place and yes, uh, what things are important to a heavy-hitting agent like yourself, who also is a big lover of music. And uh, at this time, I'm going to give you the opportunity, if you have anything you'd like to plug or talk about, I know you have, I noticed, that you've got uh, three of your acts on one big giant tour coming up. Yeah. So are you talking about Dirks? Yes. Dirk Brothers and Lanco? Yeah. Um, I was just saw that tour last weekend in Baltimore, and it's it's awesome. I mean, I think it's going to be one of the fun ones of the summer. Um, every, you know, I'm very fortunate to work with all these people for a long time, and and it's uh, it's it's just a really exciting thing to be in our office now and um, with some of the growth we've experienced and having such a diverse roster that we have that. Um, that, that's what excites me the most is that we, we get to go in every day and, and, um, and collaborate on, uh, on tours. That's great. And that tour that we're talking about is Dirk Bentley, Cadillac 3. And Lanco. And Lanco. I mean, it's really yeah, cool Lanco. to see all of your acts in, in one place. Yeah. And again, thank you so much for your time and your help. I really appreciate um, it. Okay, great. Thank you, Aaron. All right. All right. See you. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to Music Made Me, the TuneCore podcast. The opinions expressed in this episode are those of the individuals talking and don't necessarily reflect the opinions of TuneCore. Check out TuneCore.com to help you distribute your music, register your original songs worldwide, and more. Connect with us on all social channels at TuneCore. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to us on iTunes.